Our scripture reading this morning is Acts 4, 23 through 31. And when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and their people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, it is great to be with everyone this morning, the chance to speak about uh, the greatness of God in the New Testament church and then the way that that uh, applies to our lives. Uh, I'm thankful for the ways that God encourages you in the moments leading up to getting in front of a group of people. Uh, 10,000 Reasons is one of my favorite hymns. We skipped verse one, which I will forgive Ken for, uh, but verse one says, whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Hopefully uh, that is something that we can do today. That is a challenge that I try to live by every day. And my goal for this morning is to look at the way the disciples navigated life in the first century and then make applications to the way that we approach our citizenship in the 21st century. There are lots of places through the Bible where God is speaking to his people about citizenship in the world. God calls Joshua to be strong and courageous. Esther was born and chosen for such a time as this. And before the guys and Daniel get thrown into the fiery furnace, they say, but if not, if God does not save us, we will still not bow down. Jesus calls his followers to the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And part of the promise is that God is going to be with them through all of it. I want to add this passage in the book of Acts to our understanding of citizenship in a 21st century context. Citizenship at its basic, basic form is its status. It's who you are within a specific cultural context. When someone asks you, where are you from? It's a question of citizenship. And citizenship at some level is tied to our understanding of identity. So if we're in another country and someone asks us that question, we might answer, I'm from the United States. But if we're somewhere in Tennessee, we might say, I'm from Memphis. If someone inside of Shelby County asks us, where are you from? We might answer with a specific neighborhood like East Memphis or Collierville or Germantown or some other specific neighborhood within the city. 
Jesus had citizenship. He walked the earth. He was from Nazareth. He was born to Mary and to Joseph in Bethlehem. He was both fully God and fully man in his citizenship. And so he had citizenship on earth and in heaven. Jesus, in his citizenship on earth, did what we would find very difficult to do ourselves. He lives a perfect life, which we cannot do. His sacrificial death was perfect in atoning for sin, which we cannot do. He defeats sin and death through his resurrection, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit as a guide to understand who he is and to understand the Bible with greater insight, to understand ourselves and the depths of who we are. And then our daily citizenship, the Holy Spirit informs our daily citizenship in the world. Our greatest citizenship as Christians is being adopted into God's family because of the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. None of us had citizenship in God's family when we were born. Instead, we're born into our own selfishness. From day one, we are seeking our own interests above the interests of others. And when we transfer our citizenship, when God invites us into his family and then we respond, we transfer our citizenship from our little kingdom into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we transfer our primary allegiance from ourselves and from any other citizenship to what Jesus calls us to do. Through the encouragement of a good friend, uh, God has been leading me to read the book of Acts. Maybe over your years of faith, you have been encouraged to read the book of Proverbs. It has 31 chapters, one for each day of the month, and you just start over. I'm doing that with the book of Acts. It works out perfectly in February. <laughs> the rest of the year, uh, we cover those 28 days and then maybe uh, start all over, read the whole thing. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And I'm asking myself, as I read through the book of Acts, what did the disciples do? What are the disciples doing? That's my aim for me. And I just want to share what God's teaching me this morning. So what does it look like to be a 21st century Christian based on what we read in a first century book? If there's a key concept as an umbrella over the thought of our time today, it's not we're going to look at the book of Acts, but the umbrella of the thought process today is from John chapter 14, verse 12. It says, truly, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Acts chapter 4 looks a little bit different than when Jesus says this in John chapter 14. We're going to get to that a little bit more in a bit. But, but something really significant happens between John 14 and Acts 4. I know that I need what's happening in Acts chapter 4 as much as anyone in this room. I want this text to be true of me and of all of us. The passage that Barry read in Acts chapter 4 is the end of a narrative that begins in Acts chapter 3 verse 1. And here's just a quick recap. There's a lot that happens. In Acts 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple. A crippled man asks them for money. 
a handout of material possessions. Peter and John look at this guy and they say, I'm not sure if you know who you're looking at. Do you think that we're the kinds of people that have money? It was clear they, they looked like people that didn't have anything to offer. Instead, they say, here's what we will do. In the name of Jesus, pick up your mat and walk. After that, this guy, if you've been in Sunday school in your childhood years, he's walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, anybody awake? Everybody ready for lunch? Okay, stay, stick with me here. And an instantaneous providential gospel presentation takes place after that because everyone is so amazed at what's happened, they've got everybody's attention and they tell everybody about Jesus. As was the case when Jesus was walking around, uh, people find out that these guys are sharing the gospel and they get mad about it. They're upset that they're talking about Jesus. They get arrested and uh, after they get arrested, the Jewish leaders who arrest them say several times, uh, please stop, would you please stop? And they say, we can't not do what God is calling us to do and the leaders really don't wanna get in the way because it says, it's evident these guys have been with Jesus and these folks know what Jesus did and they're like, oh my gosh, the disciples are doing the same things that Jesus is doing. We're gonna keep warning them but it just feels like we really can't hold these guys back. After all that takes place, they go back, they're warned, threatened, they go back, and they praise God for what happens, and the building shakes. Okay, this happened to y'all on Sunday afternoons after lunch? Uh, this has not been my experience so far, but what kind of citizenship principles do we find as we look back through this story? What are the disciples thinking about? What are the marks of these guys? And how can we be transformed by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit in the same ways? Well, here's the first thing. Uh, they praise in spite of the persecution. They praise in spite of the persecution. If I am a citizen of God's kingdom, I respond to persecution with praise. You may remember back in May, George Murray preached a sermon called Reasoning from the Greater to the Lesser. And in that sermon, he made the case that because God is so great and God is so mighty and there's nothing that our God cannot do, that in his infinite power, he's able to create all things, sustain all things by the power of his word. And because of that truth, because that amazing truth is true, then the lesser things of my life, the daily circumstances of my life, Jesus can intervene into those too. The disciples proclaim the greater to the lesser in our passage this morning. When they get back, the first thing that they say is, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They don't pout about the persecution. They say, praise God. Anybody doing that Monday through Saturday? I'm kind of gripping the pulpit here because that's not how I think about it so often. The disciples begin with God's power and then they acknowledge that the nations are gonna raise, rage, rage, rage. But the person of Jesus Christ persecuted in verse 27, it's all part of God's sovereign plan and all of it's gonna lead up to continued persecution for the disciples. 
The disciples have a clear understanding that persecution does not happen outside of God's sovereignty. Here's what they say in verse 27. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The disciples seem to indicate Herod and Pontius Pilate are part of the plan of redemption of this world. It's not by accident. God's had it all orchestrated from the beginning. All of this persecution has been orchestrated from the very beginning. And so the next time that we face persecution of any kind, we want to handle it just like the disciples did. What would it look like if I lived this way? First thing, I would aim to do everything in my power to live as God's witness in the world. That's what I'm called to do. Secondly, I will not complain about how much the world hates me or hates Christians or hates the church. Jesus told us that was going to happen in John 16. He says, if the world hates you, it's because it hated me first. Expect it to happen. It is only through our relationship with Jesus Christ that we can understand what God's doing in the world. And when we suffer, it's part of God's purpose long beforehand, before we ever knew. Third thing, I will give praise to God for the trials. In my devotional reading this morning, uh, Oswald Chambers quoted this verse, 1 Peter 4, 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we actually give praise to God for the trials because he tells us to because God's glory is revealed when we endure well during those persecutions. I'm also, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask God to give me more of Jesus rather than asking for less persecution. You ever been to an obstacle course? Those of you that have grandkids, you've done this recently with them, you know, going to a trunk or treat. We had one in the gym last week. An obstacle course is not a course. It's an obstacle course. Those little kids, they're not like, hey, could you just like deflate the thing and then I just run through flat? Could we do that instead? No. Those kids get in there and they're like, yes, I went up over this thing and it was amazing. Right? The Christian life is not a course. It's an obstacle course. And the difference between people who are excited about the obstacle course and the people who want to just deflate the whole thing is they know that the end is out there. And they're like, hey, let me get over all these things and get to the end. That's where I'm going. And the obstacles are part of the fun. We're supposed to consider it pure joy. And sometimes we're like, oh, this is terrible. It is hard. It is hard. But we want to ask for more of Jesus, right? We want more of Jesus to get through the obstacles. We want to be as strong as we possibly can to get through all the obstacles and get to the end. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way from a sermon called The Lord's Work, The Lord's Way. He says, the central problem of our age, think about the obstacles in our world. It's not liberalism or modernism, the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism, and get this one, the monolithic consensus, 
which surrounds us, nor, I would add today, postmodernism or materialistic consumerism or visceral sensualism. He's like, all these things, that's not the problem. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. I want to be strong in God's power before those obstacles come because I know they're coming and what I really want to do is run the race in such a way that I get to the end. And all the obstacles, I'm like, get out of my way. I'm not even concerned about these things. I want to get to the end of the race. Let's go. Schaefer's not saying that these problems aren't problems. He's just saying the most important thing is Christ in me. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 10. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. And we're going to see this is, a, this is exactly how the disciples do it. Here's the next characteristic of the disciples. They have God's perfect sense instead of their own personal common sense. All right, They have God's perfect sense instead of their personal common sense. So if I'm a citizen in the kingdom of God, I will increasingly live with God's perfect sense in mind. Let's back up from this passage about 90 days to the upper room discourse. In John chapter 13, Peter says, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to have to step behind me here. That's not how we're... You actually don't know what you're saying. Peter's operating on his own common sense. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you. And they're like, where are you going? And I think Jesus is kind of like, guys. I think he's squeezing his fists a little bit. He's like, guys, I've been telling you this for years. You've been with me a while. Then in John chapter 15, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And they're like, mm-hmm, Yeah. And then in John chapter 16, he says, look, I've got to leave. They're like, why would you leave? It's better if you're here. And he says, no, 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 no. It's going to be way better when I'm not here. And they're like, Jesus, you need to stick around. We'd rather have you here than not here. And then in John chapter 17, he says, look, when I'm gone, I'm leaving. Would you all be, Father, would you make them one as I'm one with you? If they can, if I'm gone, they need to stick together. And then Jesus dies. He's resurrected. He comes back. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. The disciples say, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And I'm just wondering if Jesus is like, oh, man, I've been telling you guys what's going on. Are you paying attention to what I'm saying? I mean, I'm getting ready to go back. I'm not coming back after this. And you're still asking me this question? Right? The, the disciples are operating on their own common sense, the way they've been thinking about it the whole time. And... But now, Acts chapter 4, they are living with God's 
perfect sense in mind. They're doing things that we haven't seen up to this point. And it is super exciting to see what's happened in their lives. And that's what we want to look like. They don't ask God to take away their persecutors. They ask for boldness to communicate God's word. How do they do it? Well, they're equipped with God's resources instead of human resources. If you go back to Acts chapter 3, here's what it says in verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked, the crippled man from birth asked to receive alms. Peter says, I have no silver and gold. I don't have human resources for you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The reply of Peter indicates they don't have resources to give. The man is looking for physical and material resources. The disciples very quickly convert this conversation from physical and material to spiritual. They don't heal him in their own strength either. They heal him in the name of Jesus. And so the challenge for us is living with this possession of the Holy Spirit. Without his power, it's all too tempting to, fi to fix or to offer what's just physical or material. And when we offer what's physical and material, it feels like we don't have much, really much to bring. Here's a quote from Paul David Tripp out of New Morning Mercies. It often seems as if you're powerless to make much of a change. You know you don't have the power to change other people, and you have limited power to change situations. It so often seems that you're a witness to or affected by things you have little ability to alter. But Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. With these words, everything changes. Your king rules over everything and would, that would discourage and disappoint you, and he rules for his glory and your good. What is out of your control is under his rule. So the power of God in us and through us allows us to move and act in the world with the confidence of God. Here's the next thing. Uh, they, the, this, this guy and the disciples, the lame man and the disciples are experiencing comprehensive transformation instead of a temporary transaction. And they could have given him a little handout, just a little transaction, a little exchange of money, a temporary solution to hold him over. And it seems like he's gotten used to living that way. He's gotten used to being crippled. He's gotten used to just begging for what he can get. Isn't this similar to the way that Jesus handles the paralytic that comes through the roof? They drop this guy in, and what are they looking for? Physical healing. If this guy can walk, everything will be good. And Jesus doesn't lead with that, does he? He says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody goes, what are you talking about? That's not what he needs most. They didn't drop him through here for you to forgive him. We want to see him walk. And he goes, I know, I know. But you're going to see how powerful it is for me to forgive sins if I do this too. Hey, like, I'm not just here to heal, heal you physically. I want to see you transformed by the power of the gospel. 
The disciples were once witnesses to these miracles. Now they're the ones doing those miracles. They've been completely transformed as well. Here's the next thing. Gospel proclamation instead of self-preservation. There's a couple places in Acts chapter 4 where the disciples are, are bolder than they were when Jesus was on the earth. In verse 8, uh, actually in verse 7, they get brought before these leaders and it says, when they had set them in the midst, in, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And here's what Peter says. I think Peter's squeezing his fist too. It says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, he's sitting in that courtroom or whatever it is, and he's just waiting for them to ask a question. He's just getting charged up. He's all full. He says, "Mm, it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he, he goes right to the gospel. And he kind of knows what's coming as a result. He's not backing down. He's leaning in. And what's interesting is they ask this question. It's kind of reminiscent of the works of Jesus. In Mark 11, Jesus says, or the Gospels say, as, he, as Jesus was walking to the temple, the chief priests asked him, by what authority do you do these things? So the disciples are getting asked questions just like Jesus was getting asked questions. And before, when Peter was getting asked questions like, hey, aren't you with Jesus? He's going, not me. Sorry, not me. Now he's giving a different answer. He is bold in a way that he was not before. Peter and John saw lots of interactions with the religious leaders over the course of Jesus' life, and now they're handling it differently. What has changed? It's Acts chapter 2. These guys are now full of the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing is in Acts chapter 2, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then at the end of this passage, it says, when they had prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a filling that keeps filling. They just keep getting filled up. And I think every time they do, they just say, all right, what's next? Let's go. We can't wait. Here's how John Piper talks about it. He says, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. So the same things that happened to Jesus happened to us. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering that Jesus experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. We want to proclaim the gospel rather than preserve ourselves. We want to lose our lives in order to keep it. Next characteristic of the disciples, they're living on God's power instead of human power. So if I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, I have experienced Holy Spirit transformation and power. The disciples have moved away, kind of the way that they've always thought about it for all these years. 
We know who the disciples are. They're a ragtag bunch that's pulled off the shore and pulled out of the tax collection booth and pulled, and Jesus brings them together and says, this is what we're going to do. And for the longest time, they're struggling to move away from their own human power and move into God's power. And we get to this passage in Acts chapter 4 and the Jewish leaders recognize these guys have been with Jesus. That's an amazing indictment. That's the kind of indictment we want to have in our lives. Here's the next thing. Complete joy over partial joy. If I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, I aim to live in God's complete joy over the partial joy that the world offers to me. If you were here last week, Sandy Wilson taught uh, Philippians 3, 1 to 11, and his final point was that the treasure of joy that Jesus promises is a greater, the greatest joy over any other joy. And his text challenged us to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and sharing in his sufferings in order to be like him in his death. Sometimes it's hard to think about having that kind of life. I know what kind of life I want. I want to be left to myself sometimes and just have some alone time. I want to live for my own pleasure, with my own power, with my own stuff, and a lot of times I want to eliminate suffering at all costs. And it sounds better on the surface. Following Jesus is so much harder and yet so much greater than choosing my own way. The disciples knew Jesus, but they didn't know the power of the resurrection until it happened. And now they're moving into sharing with his sufferings. And now they're moving into experiencing the joy of Jesus because they're doing the things that Jesus did and they have the mind of Christ in a way they did not have before. This description in Acts 4, 23 to 31 is a description of people who've experienced the fullness of joy that Jesus offers that they begin with praise. They recognize that it's all sovereign and they ask for boldness. So the title of the sermon today is Squeezing Fists and Squeezing Sponges. What's that about? Do you ever squeeze your fists? I do. And it's usually one of two reasons. I'm either really, really mad or I'm really, really excited. And sometimes you get really excited when you're angry. Uh, so, but if you're really mad about something, you kind of squeeze your fists about it. And if you watched football yesterday, you may have done that. As your team was losing or blundering, you say, I'm so frustrated. But then there's this other psychological phenomenon that, that if you have grandkids or uh, actually my, my back fence neighbor had a baby uh, at 2 a.m. after Halloween into November 1st, and when you see a brand new baby, and you just go, oh, I could squeeze you. You ever do that? 
Who's done that in the last week with your grandkids or your kids? Or come on, hands up, right? Oh, I could just squeeze you. What if we had a new visual in our minds for why the building shakes? Ever thought about why the building shakes? Is, is God capable of doing earthquakes within one home? I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. But here's my thought. Here's how I'm thinking about the building shaking. I think that the power of the Holy Spirit is so present and he is so thrilled with how they respond to all that they've been through. He goes, oh, guys, I could just squeeze you. I could just come around this building and, mm, and the building shakes. There is a visceral reaction. There is a physical phenomenon that takes place because these guys say, guess what? Praise God for the trial. We know you're sovereign over all of it. We don't even expect it to stop. If anything, we know that this experience is going to make us more like you, and that's exactly what we want to do. And the Holy Spirit just says, oh, yes. Well done. Keep it up, y'all. All y'all. Okay. Yeah. So what happens after this? Well, the rest of the book of Acts, these folks are squeezed out like a sponge. Right? Jesus, Holy Spirit saying, yes, keep going. And then they just get squeezed out. But Jesus talked about this a long time ago, didn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, fig bushes do not produce thorns. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we want to be the kind of people that when we get squeezed, juice comes out. Right? And this is why Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If we stay connected to Jesus, we can be fruitful people for his sake. And this is why we abide in Jesus minute by minute and hour by hour and week by week. We're not really sure when the trial is coming. Here's how, uh, back on, if you're a devotional person, my utmost for his highest on September 10th, here's what Oswald Chambers writes. We presume that we would be ready for battle if confronted with a great crisis. But it is not the crisis that builds something within us. It simply reveals what we are made of already. Do you find yourself saying, if God calls me to battle, of course I will rise to the occasion. Yet you won't rise to the occasion unless you have done so on God's training ground. Like that's God's obstacle course. He's in charge of it all. If you are not doing the task that is closest to you now, which God has engineered into your life, when the crisis comes, instead of being fit for battle, you will be revealed as being unfit. Crises always reveal a person's true character. A private relationship of worshiping God is the greatest essential element of spiritual fitness. These guys spent three years with Jesus, and it was really hard for them to be just like him. They received the Holy Spirit, and they're transformed, and I think day by day, they just want to be like Jesus. They want to be ready for the battle, and then they start getting squeezed, and juice comes out. It's wonderful. And we want to be just like them.
And so let me encourage you. Um, this is what I this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. I think this is who God wants us to be. Let's be fit. Not so that we can say we're physically fit, but because we know that God wants to use us for as long as he has us, us here for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the disciples, their example, uh, even the way that you took uneducated men, people who were not fit for service, and it wasn't anything of this world that made them different. It was you, and then you sustained them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you do the same works in us? Because that's what you said you wanted to do this whole time. And we ask that we, it would happen for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.